Welcome to the sermon podcast for Restoration Nazarene Church, where we encourage you to be the gospel today so that you can share the gospel tomorrow. So Revelation, for those of you that read this week, how did you, how did you do with it? Do you want to pull it down just a little bit? There's a ring. Cool. I'll talk quietly. How did you like Revelation? Did nobody read it? That's okay if you didn't. I read it. Yep. All right. So I, I think you all know me well enough to know that I love doing puzzles. Um, I love solving Rubik's Cubes. And I usually have a whole bunch. This was the only one that I could find late last night. And this, this one has five sides to it. So there's, uh, you can spin it. So it's a five by five is what they call it. The standard one is the three by three, but they have a two by two. I've got a four by four at home somewhere, another three by three. So it's a Rubik's Cube. And does anybody like solving Rubik's Cubes? Just one person back here. So I love it. It's therapeutic for me to just sit there and figure out and, and and put it all together. But as I, was, as I was reading Revelation this week and through our conversations throughout the week about this, this is kind of what I was picturing with Revelation is you, you read about the four horsemen and the different colors and, and the red horse and the, the pale horse and the green horse and all these different colored horses. And you think about how does all of this fit together? And I, I imagine a Rubik's cube where a Rubik's cube is just a bunch of colors and you look at it and you're like, how does this all fit together to make one big puzzle? It's just so confusing. And I don't know about you, but that's usually how I approach Revelation is wow, this is just so confusing. It's hard to know where to start. If you think about a Rubik's Cube, like you, you pick this up, where do you start? Where do you begin to solve it? The same thing is true with Revelation. Where do you start? Where do you go? Where, where do all the pieces go? How does all of this fit together with all of these? It's almost like a puzzle that you have to figure out within Revelation. And just in case you didn't do the, the reading, we were in chapters five, six, and seven this week. And so just a quick recap. So chapter five describes this scene where, where John is in the throne room of heaven, and it's the scene of worship for the lamb that is Jesus. So this great scene of worship, and then there's this scroll that has seven seals on it. And you think of a scroll that has a seal on it, like medieval times where they would put the wax and they would take their signet ring and stick it on there. It has this seal where you need somebody of authority to open it up. So there's this seal that has seven of those waxed seals, a scroll that has seven of those on it. And then you go to chapter six where Jesus, the lamb, starts opening these seals. He opens six of them and it's just complete chaos that happens from these six seals that open. And then you go to chapter seven where you go back into the throne room of heaven where it's the scene of worship again. 
And so today what I want to do is I want to look at all of these and I want to talk through a little bit of what's going on because I know there's lots of questions of, of what do all these seals mean? What, what does it look like? What are all these colors? And we talked a little bit um, throughout Facebook uh, through this week. I wrote that little thing together, but it doesn't answer all the questions on purpose. Uh, so I want to talk through some of those, but then also point to what this whole section, the, this, this whole cycle as we've been talking about with Revelations is, is looking at. At. In this, this entire cycle, these passages, these, these three chapters of Revelation, the, the central focus is all around the throne room in heaven. Everything that happens, happens through the perspective of the throne room in heaven. John is in the throne room watching all of these happen. He is with the God, in, in the presence of God, with Jesus, with the angels and the creatures, and watching all of this happen. And through this section, through these few chapters, we see two prominent questions come up. These are what they ask in there. The first question is found in chapter 5, verse 2. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then it continues in verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. No one was worthy enough. That's our first question. Who is worthy enough? The second question comes from the end of chapter 6, after the complete chaos, after just this madness that happens on earth. The people that are left on earth ask this question at the very end of chapter 16, verse 17, that says, For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? These are the two questions. Who is worthy and who is worthy to withstand it? And they're kind of the same question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And who is worthy to withstand the six seals? And I think about that while keeping in mind that John is in the throne room of God. He's in the presence of God. And yet they're still asking this question of, of who is worthy? And nobody seems to be, to be worthy. They're standing there and the angel says, nobody above earth, on earth or below earth, meaning angels nor humans nor demons are worthy enough to open this scroll. And I can't help but read this and wonder, are we even worthy enough to, to be in the presence of God? We talk about that quite a bit. Are we worthy enough to be in the presence of God? The Bible tells us that, that nobody can see God face to face, that nobody has ever seen him face to face, and that nobody can while we're in this life on earth. There are some people that get close. We have Moses who goes up on the mountain, and there's this great scene in Exodus where he, he gets to experience the presence of God, but he doesn't get to see him face to face. God says, I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to shield your eyes from seeing me face to face. And that moment, that small encounter of just being in the presence of God illuminated his face. His face was now like a light bulb or a flashlight, just extremely blinding, so much so that he comes down from the mountain and all of the Israelites are terrified because of his face. He gets so close to the presence of God that his face begins to shine, which is not human. That doesn't happen. We also see in 
the book of Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, we see this scene where he is also transported into the throne room of God. And he's, he's in there. This is chapter 6 of Isaiah. And after being in the presence of God, Isaiah immediately says, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, the prophet Isaiah felt unworthy to be in the presence of God. Some people get close to the presence of God, but no one is worthy enough to get face to face with God. And this can sometimes be a little difficult for us to, to think about because we don't have the opportunity to be transported into the throne room of heaven. But we do have the privilege of experiencing the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of God. Have you ever had an experience with the Holy Spirit where, where you just, you can't really describe it, but you know it was the Holy Spirit doing something in you or around you? It's just, it's difficult to describe, but you just know. Have you had that before? A few of you are shaking your heads, yes. A few years ago, I, I had this experience. It was something like that that's so difficult for me to explain. And I, I was at church and we were sitting there. It was at the end of service and there was a song that was being played and I was sitting there and there was a guy standing next to me and I felt this urge or this call to ask this guy if he would want to go to the altar and pray. Yes, we'll get altars eventually. Um, but this church had altars. And I had this urge, this, this, this need to ask this guy to go pray, but I was, I was too afraid. Like that is way outside of my comfort zone to do. And so I, I said like, no, I'm just going to ignore it. But the feeling got bigger and bigger. Then I'm starting to feel sick and I'm like, okay, fine, I, I will do it. And so I asked the guy and he says, yes. And so we walk down to the altar and, and we, we get down there and just immediately we both start bawling. And I think you know me well enough to know that I'm not much of a crier. It'll happen occasionally, but I don't cry that frequently. But in this moment, we just both start bawling. We are weeping and we're, we're trying to communicate through these weeping words and, and we kind of get out. And in that moment, he, he surrenders his life to Jesus. He accepts Jesus as his Lord and Savior, which was so cool. But, but there was something else that was going on. The Holy Spirit was doing something and it was just this presence got more overwhelming. And I thought I was finally getting over it service was over. We were done praying. I walk back and some random person comes up and just says, hey, how are you doing? And I lose it again. I just start crying. And then that feeling comes back and I ran, like literally, I just, no words came out of my mouth. I, mouth, I just turned around and booked it behind the stage, behind the pipe and drape area. And I just sat back there and it was the craziest thing that happened. I was, I was sitting there because I could not stand. I literally could not stand up. I tried, but I was sitting down and this, this overwhelming feeling was, was inside of me and I was crying uncontrollably. I couldn't speak. I couldn't stand. I couldn't move. It was, it was the presence of God and I, I, I don't know how to explain it. And this is going to sound really weird to come out of my mouth, but there came a moment where it was so intense that I literally, as best as I could out loud said, God, leave me. Holy Spirit, get away from me. I cannot handle this anymore, which sounds so weird to say, but that experience was so intense and so overwhelming that I literally could not handle it anymore. And it was not until I said, God, please just, just leave me. I am unworthy. I cannot be standing here or sitting here anymore that finally the presence left a little 
little bit. I experienced the Holy Spirit. And, and this, is, this is what I'm imagining with John. That experience for me is, is how I imagine the presence of God and how, how great that is. That it's so overwhelming and it's, it, it was so terrifying, but at the same time, it was so wonderful that I left that place never wanting to experience that again, but craving to experience it again at the same time. I can't explain it. And that, to me, I believe that that is only a small glimpse of what the presence of God is like, of what the holiness of God is really like. Why we read about these people in the Old Testament that, that say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, that just fall to their knees because they can't do anything else because they're in the presence of God. And this is what I'm imagining with John in the throne room, witnessing this great scene of worship in chapter five. But then this, this great scene of worship is interrupted by, by, by somebody asking, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then when John realizes that there is nobody worthy enough, he begins to weep. And in verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He, has a, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The question was, who is worthy? And we now have the answer. It is the Lion of Judah, which is Jesus. But what's interesting is that, that John is told about this lion. But in verse 6, it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. John is told about a lion. He hears about a lion. But when he turns and looks, he sees a lamb, which is the opposite of a lion. A lion is, is the king of the jungle, a mighty warrior, king. But, but what good is a lamb? A lamb is weak. And this, I think what they're trying to do here is talk about the expectations of the Messiah, the expectations of Jesus. Everybody thought that Jesus, the Messiah, would return as this king, this ruler to, to save all the people, to deliver them. But yet Jesus disrupted all of that. He turned those expectations upside down and he came as a lamb to be slaughtered. It's almost as if we, we often place our expectations differently on what it means to be worthy. We think about being worthy as being this great lion. Who is worthy? It must be this great lion, a great king, this great powerful person. But yet Jesus, through his life and through his message, says no. It's about being a lamb. It's about appearing weak out of love. And John gets to experience this, and it's almost like a moment of bliss, but it doesn't last for very long because then we go to chapter six, and Jesus starts to open the seals, and he opens six of the seven seals, which unleash complete chaos upon the world. And before I, I walk through these seals, it's important to state that, that the order of the seals are not necessarily a chronological order of what's going to happen in time. They're more used to describe or, or point out certain things that are going to happen. Like if I was describing, I see a yellow and 
an orange, I almost forgot my colors, and a white, and a blue, and a white. I listed them in an order, but they are all on the front at the exact same time. I just can't write or speak all of these colors at the exact same moment in that instance. You just have to list them out. And that's more of what's going on here. So it's not a chronological order of what's going to happen, but just describing what is going to happen. And so the first four seals are horsemen. And each horse is a different color. And the horseman holds a, a different weapon or a tool in order to represent something specific to the early church. Because remember, this was first written to the church. And we need to think about it from the perspective of the first church. And the whole book of Revelation is filled with all this imagery that all represents something. Symbols that represent something. And so the first one we have is, is a white horseman holding a bow, which represents the fact that the nation of Rome was not safe because they would have thought about the, the um, and I forgot him. Starts with a P. The other enemy that attacked Rome, the Parthians, I believe is who it is. Um, and they were the first people to have archers on top of horseback and they rode white horses. And so you think about this, and this was the first thing that the early Christian church would have thought about were the Parthians, if I'm saying that correctly, I cannot remember at this moment, uh, but I believe it was the Parthians. And then second, we have this red horseman with a large sword that's given the power to remove peace which would lead to violence between people. So the first one comes to, to destroy this idea that people can't put their faith and trust in their own nation because even Rome, this great power of Rome, is not safe to the white horse. And then the second one comes the red horseman to talk about how peace can be removed and now civil war will break out. People will fight each other. They'll have water gun fights with each other in this moment. And it's to help them realize that even they, they can't even place their faith in their own families or their own people. And then we have a black horseman that's holding a scale, like a balance scale that, that represents famine and economic hardship, which means that people can't place their faith into money. And then finally, we have a pale horseman and the rider's name is death, which represents death, meaning that people can't place their faith in their own life, in their own health, because everybody can die. And these four horsemen, these first four seals were used to shatter the illusion of, of the security that people had placed in their nation, in their people, their families, in money, the economy, and in their own life. And then we have the fifth seal that's opened and we see all of the souls of people that have been killed for the faith. And God gives each of them a white robe and tells them to wait a little longer. And this white robe represents purity and victory and celebration. And I want you to hold on to that because that's going to be important in a moment. So I'm going to skip over that one. So then we have the final seal, seal six, at least in this chapter. There's still one left to be broken. But in chapter six, the last seal that's open is, is seal six. And this one just describes complete chaos on earth. We have earthquakes, stars fall from the skies, the sun is turned black, the moon is turned red, and everyone flees to the mountains and they shout out, who is worthy to to stand. 
We are back to our question. Who is worthy? There was no one worthy enough to open the scroll except for Jesus. So who is worthy enough to withstand all of these seals, to withstand all of this chaos? And when we read these two chapters together, we see this common theme developing. It's not about providing us a chronological order of things that are going to happen in the future or what we can expect to happen in the end times. Instead, it's a call filled with, with imagery and symbols to get us to evaluate our own lives. We talked last week about how the entire book of Revelation was written to the early church and that the first seven letters that were written to the church were used to call them, to help them evaluate their own lives. And they were all given, hey, you do well in this area, but this is what I have against you, how I need you to improve yourselves for a purpose that led back to worship. And to further this call, we have this scene in the throne room of heaven where we as readers were drawn in to experience all of this chaos for the sole purpose of getting us to ask the question, who is worthy to stand? Are we worthy to withstand the chaos that can come? This past monsoon season that we had, I was, I was a bit worried about my little tree out in our front yard. We just planted this tree in May, and the, the tree has been through so much. We planted it in May, and then just a few weeks later in June, we had those, that week of 100-degree weather that we were out of town. I came back, and the whole side of the tree was scorched. It was just brown everywhere, and I thought at that moment it was dead and gone, but I threw a whole bunch of extra water on it and it came back. And so then I was like, great, we got this little tree. But then these monsoons, I was a little bit worried about all the intense winds. Was the tree going to be able to stand through all of it? But the, the hard thing is you don't know. You don't know if the tree is going to be able to withstand until the winds come, until the chaos comes, because you, the thing that holds it in are the roots, and you can't see the roots from above the ground. So, so to the, the answer to the question of whether or not the tree is worthy enough to stand in the storm is one that I can't even answer, but has to do with the tree itself, the roots that are inside, the things that are deep down that are hidden to most people. And so we're brought back to this question in Revelation, who is worthy to stand? And from the outside, nobody can answer that question for somebody else because it has to do with our roots that are deep down. Who is worthy to stand? After a complete chaos, we as the readers are drawn back to ask this question together, who is worthy to stand? Which brings us to chapter 7. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 7 that, that the four angels stand in the corners of the earth and hold back the winds. It's a sense of peace on earth after this moment of chaos. And before we answer the question of who is worthy, there's a few things that I want to point out with chapter 7. First is that chapter 7 brings us back to a place of worship in the throne room. It starts with worship, and then we have chaos, and then we come back to worship. 
There must be something special about this idea of worship because revelation always brings us back to a place of worship. To make this point further, it is through the chaos that we are brought to a place of worship, of worshiping Jesus. And so I wonder, does the chaos that you experience in your life, that you go through, does the chaos in your life bring you back to a place of worship being Jesus? The second thing that we see is, is again, Revelation uses a lot of imagery and they, they often place things at opposite ends of each other that don't really make sense. Like we saw earlier how John heard about a lion but saw a lamb. In verse 3, there's a voice that says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. In chapter 6, we see the seal we see God's scroll that has these seals and the seals were there. And once they were opened, once the seals were there, chaos would be unleashed. But here in a reversal, chaos is kept at bay so that the seals could be placed on the foreheads of God's people. And these seals were used for protection or ownership to God. And these were placed together on opposite ends to, to make a point and to lead us to the idea and understanding of what God does for us. Of how God will hold back the chaos in our lives to protect us, to lead us back to a place of worship. And third, we see, we see John who hears in verse 4 that the, the number of those who had been sealed is 144,000. But then he looks and sees, remember, he always hears something, but then sees something different. He hears that the number is 144,000, but when he looks in verse 9, he sees that there's more than 144,000. There's a great multitude that no one could count. Just like before with the lion, there was a certain expectation. The Jewish people had this expectation that they were the chosen, that they were the saved, which is where 144,000 comes from because there are 12 tribes of Judah, 12 tribes of, of Israel. When you take 12 tribes times 12, you get 144. And so it talks about and lists out that there are 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, which gets you 144,000, which is, which is making this, this statement that it's, that it's this Old Testament prophecy of the Jews that are promised to be set free. But then John not only hears about that, but then he sees that it's much more than that. That the expectation isn't that there's just this few chosen people, but those that can be saved is, is uncountable. We can't get there. And then we come to verses 9 through 14. And again, I want you to remember that the question is, who is worthy to stand? Is what it says. John is speaking here. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This word standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. 
all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise in God and worship and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? John answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, we have all this imagery again. Has anybody ever tried to wash white clothes in the washer and you throw one red thing in there? Does it all come out red? Does it all come out white? Is what I meant to ask. It all kind of comes out red or pinkish color. But yet this elder says that they washed their robes and made them white in the red blood of Jesus, which doesn't make any sense at all. Again, John hears that the number of those that have been saved was 144,000. That was the expectation that only the Jews would be saved. But John sees something completely different. The expectation is so much bigger because people from every nation, every tribe, every language... They're countless. It's a multitude of people. And they were all standing. So who is worthy to stand? The answer is those that have been dressed in white. Those from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we saw in chapter 6 with the fifth seal that those were dressed in white were those that remained faithful to Christ even to death. It was the souls that have been martyred, that had been killed in other words, it was the people that remained faithful. They were dressed in white. So who is worthy to stand? Those that remain faithful to Christ. Those that do not place their faith in false securities of this world, like the nation or our family, our community, or the economy, or our health, or our lives, but those that place their faith and trust in Christ alone, those that can endure the temptations and trials of life. Verse 14 says that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And again, white here doesn't just mean the color white, but it represents victory. It represents purity. It represents celebration. That's why brides wear white wedding dresses. It's a celebration. It's purity. It is victory. Those that place their faith in Jesus can stand through it all. Those that place their faith in Jesus will find purity and victory and celebration. Sometimes the chaos in our lives brings us back to a place of worship to Jesus. That's the message here in Revelation, is if you can withstand the chaos, is if you can remain faithful to Jesus Christ, you will be dressed in white robes and you are able to withstand. It all comes back to Jesus. It was because Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross. It was because his blood was shed that we are able to wash our white robes in his blood. Who is worthy to stand? Only those that have been washed by the blood of Jesus and remain faithful to him. And who has been washed by the blood of Jesus? 
everyone that believes in his name. So where are you at this morning? Are, are you looking at your life and the, and the things that are happening in the world around you? In your life around you and just seeing the complete chaos that is being unleashed and happening? Are you focusing on that chaos and wondering, am I strong enough to stand in the presence of God? Or are you placing your hope in Jesus Christ and him alone and looking at the circumstances of the world through the perspective of heaven in the midst of the lamb, in the midst of the true king, Jesus Christ, because it was by his blood that we have been saved. It is because of his body that we find grace. It is through his blood and through his body. And that is why we celebrate communion, which we're going to do now. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ that we have been saved. Thanks for joining us today. We would love to continue the conversation and connect with you. Comment, like, subscribe, follow us on the socials at rnaschurch or our website, rnaz.church.